Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. Hear now God's Word. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ, if, indeed, you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. We have been considering the great antithesis, the great contrast between belief and unbelief. It's a difference between light and dark, between ignorance and knowledge, between Futility and understanding between death and life. You and I stand on one side or the other of this great divide. And even as Joshua said to the people, people of Israel, choose you this day whom you will serve. That question still stands for each of us. Everyone makes this choice. Everyone is making this choice right now. You made that choice many times last week, and you'll make it again many times in the week to come. Jesus said, and I remember for a good part of my adult life, particularly as a young man, uh, this verse was haunting to me, this past two verses uh, from Matthew 7, the words of Jesus, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. The Apostle Paul, having finished a description of the unbeliever, now abruptly changes here in this text, and he says, But you have not so learned Christ. Here we find that great word, but. But it's not just the word but. It's also the word you. But you. You are the contrasting thing. You are set over against what he's been describing. Or at least you should be. As Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, he no doubt recognizes that this was not true for every individual there at Ephesus who would be hearing these words. He had his concerns about those who might have a false assurance. About those who showed few, if any, signs of having left the unbelieving world. About those who were trying to maintain one foot in the church and one foot in the world whenever it suited them. And thus, he is now drawing some lines. He is providing some definition. Paul is saying that if this does not describe you, if in, excuse me, that if this does describe you, if you have 
truly learned Christ, then this should be should immediately produce deep gratitude in you because of what you've been rescued from. Now, if your belief in Jesus is only theoretical, only rote, only something you've just heard all your life and somehow you've adopted, it's in the background, it's in there somewhere, or if it's just intellectual, then what he has to say will not move you at all. You can sit there like a bump on a log. But if you believe, if you believe in Jesus, if you truly do, you'll be moved. If you can sit here and hear these words and your mind can drift past them, or let them drift past you with no impact at all, then I may as well be telling a joke to a dead man and expecting him to laugh. But for anyone who has any sense of their sin and its destructive power over us, the realization that God has dealt with that, that God has indeed set us free, can't help, that cannot help but stir up feelings of gratitude and thanksgiving. Having been cut off, God has provided a bridge. Now, I want to note some. I was thinking about this yesterday or the day before. I don't remember which. But there's two kinds of blindness. There's a blindness that, of course, comes from living in the world. That callousness that builds up from sin. Um, But there's another kind of blindness that comes, I think, for some who grow up in the church. And since that's who I'm speaking to today, I want to draw a point here and focus on it. It's kind of like a blindness of someone who drives down the same road every day and fails to see that beautiful tree or the sunset or that that lovely home or that pasture. It's a blindness of the same old thing. That's one of the greatest dangers of second generation faith. Perhaps it's time to awaken you from your sleep. And and for you to see and to notice what God has done for you. I had my freshman English teacher, who I owe a great deal to, who actually did a miraculous thing. She made me love poetry uh, by the time the class was over. But she had this little cliched thing she'd say every day as we left class. And it really is. It's kind of a little bumper sticker thing. But it stuck with me. Don't forget to look at the rainbows. Don't forget to look around you. Don't forget to see what's right next to you, what's right before you. What a tragedy to pass that up. Now, the world is well aware of uh, that there's something wrong. In fact, the world is well aware that something is very badly, uh, something has gone very badly in the world. The daily news is full of injustice and tragedy and war and protest after protest after protest. It's endless. Everyone is outraged over something. And so solutions are sought, but to no avail. 
Politics and education and science and technology have all been brought to bear, but man is no better and perhaps he is worse off. I I thought of it, it's the difference between a grenade and an atom bomb. The atom bomb is worse than the grenade, and our modern world, you see, with all of its technology, only amplifies our problems, makes them bigger, more powerful, more impactful. It magnifies man's rebellious heart. We are not any more moral or kind. God has been sidelined, and man still stands in defiance. By the way, the educated and the wealthy are no better off than the uneducated or the poor. In fact, arguably, they are worse. And so there is only one thing that can turn this around. The Apostle Paul, surveying the great Roman Empire, summarized it when he said this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Every word of that is rich. Every word of that is powerful. Because it is the power of God, it offers genuine hope to those in despair. God sees us truly. In fact, He sees us at our worst. He sees us right down to the center of our black hearts. And He has the power to change you. And He has the power to turn on the lights and to dispel the darkness. He created and He can recreate you after the image of Christ. Now if that happens, if that has already happened to you, then the results will of necessity be dramatic. Paul put it this way in Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us or transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. You live in a new realm. You live under a new king. You are not just a little bit better. You're brand new. That's why He saves His people, to make them new, to make them righteous, to get them ready for the new heavens and the new earth. If you're not new, if you're not living in the kingdom of light, then you haven't learned Christ and you're not going to live with Him. God took His people out of Egypt before He brought them in to the promised land. And He takes us out of the old world and He puts us in a new one. We're governed by someone else from another place. And Philippians 3, 19-20, Paul contrasts those who set their minds on earthly things with those who have citizenship in heaven from which they also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is how Jesus described those who are genuinely His. They are not of the world, just as I am not of this world. Jesus describes those who know Him as the salt of the earth as lights in the world. For those who, in contrast to the unbeliever, have learned Christ, they stand out by contrast. Listen to Paul's expansion of this contrast and find yourself in here. 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Boy, when you get a double here. Do you not know this? Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Don't deceive yourself. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. You say, well, that's not very nice, and I disagree. I think it's very nice, because it's true. And the truth is nice. The truth loves you. The truth is trying to save you, rescue you from death. He, here's, what he, but here's what he said. Listen to the gospel. And such were some of you. But you have been washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. God has done something. His power has transformed you. I've often said that it doesn't trouble me so much that someone doesn't participate wholeheartedly in the life of the church as it does the question of why they don't want to. Why that's not a big deal. That's more troubling to me. It's a lack of desire and enthusiasm for the things of God that's the troubling thing. Indifference and complacency will kill also. There are sure signs that someone doesn't know Christ, or at least doesn't know Him very well. They have not learned Christ. James 4.4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, or hostility toward God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Perhaps you've known Christians who thought that the best way to win the world was for us to just be like the world. Let's see how close we can come to be like them. We want to dress like them and talk like them and do all the things they do. While we are ambassadors to the world, we are ambassadors of Christ. We represent Him to the world. While Jesus was a friend of sinners, he himself was without sin, and we are called to imitate and to represent him to the world. To learn Christ requires us to follow Christ, and if we follow Christ, we'll be like Christ, and if we become like Christ, then the things of this earth, as the song says, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Paul says... It's pretty explicit. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness and lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temples of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. 
I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So I don't know where you are in life. I mean, I'm looking at a crowd right here, so I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, whether it's your job or school or your friendships or marriage or where all those different things about you. Is your, one, is your life one of clear dedication to Christ, to following Christ, to representing Christ, to knowing Christ? Is that you? Is that how you work? Is that how you play? Is that how you do your schoolwork? Or do you compromise? Well, I've got to get ahead, you know. I've got to make an A in this class. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. So I will say or do whatever needs to be said or done in order to get this other thing. That's secondary, or maybe it's number 10. Maybe it's not on, shouldn't be on the list at all. Are you willing to give up those things if necessary to follow Christ? I think there are some of us who like to sneak out of Christendom at night and go to town. And then sneak back home before daylight. We don't want to live in that world, but we sure do like to visit. But the world has nothing of substance to offer. G.K. Chesterton observed that the modern world is full of the old Christian virtues gone mad. The virtues have gone mad because they have been isolated from each other and are wandering alone. By asking for pleasure... This man lost the chief pleasure. It is impossible without humility to enjoy anything. Last week on Saturday night, the thought came to me to use the opening section of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress to close the sermon, which I did last week. This week, as I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermon on this passage, he closed his sermon with a different passage from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, it's a description of the chief character, a man named Christian, and his traveling companion, another man named Faithful, as they are passing through a town called Vanity Fair, which represents this world. I know most of you have read this, but if you're like me, perhaps it's been a while, and so... Every time I go back and reread a portion of it, I just remember how brilliant it is. I remember hearing in an American history class many, many, many years ago that uh, the three most popular books in America uh, for the first hundred years, and this was done by figuring out how many people owned this book or how many libraries it was in, uh, were the, the Bible, Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, and John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Those were the three most influential books. So here, I'll close out today and listen carefully. It's a little it's an extended passage, but I think it's very helpful in this context as we try to find ourselves. Are, we, are you like Christian and faithful here in this story? But certainly we can all relate to this. So listen to this description as it captures the spirit of the contrast between the unbeliever's world and these two men who had learned Christ. 
Then I saw in my dream that when Christian and Faithful had come out of the wilderness, they immediately saw ahead of them a town which was named Vanity. Now at this town, a fair is promoted there that is known as Vanity Fair. It is maintained all the year long and bears the name Vanity Fair because the town where it is located is regarded as lighter than vanity and also because all that is sold there as well as those who come to buy, it is worthless. As is the saying of the wise man, all that this world promotes is vanity. This fair is not some newly constructed business, but an enterprise going back into antiquity. Let me tell you about its origin. Almost 5,000 years ago, even then, there were pilgrims walking toward the celestial city, just as these two honest persons are doing now. And so Belzebub, Apollyon, and Legion, all with their associates, noticing that the path along which the pilgrims traveled toward the city passed through this town of vanity, they determined to construct a fair. It was to be a festive market in which there would be sold every sort of vanity and it would be open all the year long. Therefore, at this fair, every type of merchandise was sold, including houses, lands, trades, places, honors, promotions, titles, countries, kingdoms, lust, and pleasures. There were also delights of all sorts, such as prostitutes, madams, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and much more. And moreover, at this fair, there is the constant entertainment of jugglers and cheats, games, plays, clowns, mimics, tricksters, rogues, and many other amusements. Here also to be found a number of free offerings, including thefts, murders, adulteries, perjurers, all in various shades of blood. Now, as I said, the way to the celestial city runs directly through this town with its lusty fare, and he who would go to that city and yet not pass through this town must necessarily go out of this world. The prince of princes himself, when traveling in this region, passed through this town when heading toward his own country, and at a time when the fair was in full operation. Yes, and I believe it was Belzebub, the chief lord of the fair, who personally invited him to buy some of its vanities. Yes, he would have made, even made him a lord of this fair, if only the prince had bowed his overall authority while passing through the town. Further, because he was such a person of honor, Belzebub escorted him from street to street and showed him in short, in a short space of time, all the kingdoms of the world so that he might lure the Blessed One to lower himself and buy some of the vanities. But this stranger had no desire whatsoever for this merchandise, and therefore he departed from the town without spending so much as one cent on these worthless goods. Therefore, this fair is certainly an antiquity of long standing and a very great fair at that 
Now, as I said, these pilgrims must necessarily pass through this fair. Well, so they did. But especially note that even as they entered the fair, all of the people there became disturbed. And the whole town itself was turned into commotion around them. There were several reasons for this, and he's going to now give the three reasons. And again, to see ourselves in this story. First, the pilgrims were dressed with a type of clothing that was quite different from the attire of those who traded at that fair. Therefore, the people of the fair stared at them with astonishment. Some of them said they were fools, and some called them madmen, while others derided them as foreigners. Second, as the great crowd wondered at their clothing, so they were similarly curious about their speech, for few could understand what they said. The pilgrims spoke their native tongue, the language of Canaan, but those who managed and frequented the fair were men who spoke the language of this world, so that throughout the fair their foreign speaking made them appear as barbarians in their midst. Third, this did especially amuse the merchants. These pilgrims placed little value on all their goods. They did not even care to browse browse at them, and they were solicited to buy such items. They would put their fingers in their ears and cry out, Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity. At the same time, they would look upward, signifying that their trade and commerce were with heaven. Lord willing, next time we will expand upon what it means to learn Christ. But we can simply say this today, if indeed you have learned Christ, then in fact you can see where Paul has drawn this line that we must find ourselves on one side or the other. Those are the only choices, the narrow way or the broad way. We are in one place or the other. And so let us ponder these things, consider where we've come from and where we're going. Let us pray. Father, thank you for seeing us and finding us and rescuing us from ourselves and from the kingdom of darkness. Thank you for enlightening our hearts and minds, for giving us purpose and meaning and for ending the futility of our lives and for ending the alienation between you and us. Thank you for teaching us Christ, for calling us out, and for bringing us in. Fill us with gratitude and thanksgiving. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus told his disciples to remember Lot's wife. Genesis 19:24-26 Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens so he overthrew those cities all the all the plain all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground but Lot's wife looked back behind her and she became a pillar of salt We come to this table at the beginning of each week to regain and maintain our focus, to set aside the attractions and distractions, to remember where we're going. 
Vanity Fair is all around us, all the time, with all of its lights and sounds and promised prizes. But this carnival will soon be over, and it's nothing compared to the celestial city. Like Christian, we're not walking alone. We have many faithfuls by our side. And so as we gather at this table to be fed and nourished again, we will then be set out to continue our journey together. O Lord, always be our support and strength in this spiritual warfare, wherein we have pledged today to engage anew against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have solemnly renounced our sins and expressed our desire above all things to be delivered from them. Be graciously pleased to accept these sincere intentions and desires and to consider our many weaknesses. Keep us steadfast in the resolutions that we have made today against every evil way. We implore the constant assistance of the Holy Spirit to subdue our corruptions and restrain all inordinate desires and to make us delight in your ways and to replenish our souls with all Christian graces and virtues. As we examine our lives, may we find in ourselves a greater growth and steadfastness in the practice of our faith, greater striving daily against sin and moving on from grace to grace and from virtue to virtue. May we live and die in your favor and obedience and be received into your eternal and glorious kingdom through the merits and mediation of your Son, Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior and Redeemer. Bless now our feast our fellowship, and our rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.